Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond and today I'm joined by RJ Barker whose novel, Age of Assassins, is out now from orbit. Regular listeners will remember RJ from our Nine Worlds panel where he joined us along with Anna Smith-Spark. But today I've got him all to myself. RJ, thank you for joining me. Hello Charlotte, pleased to be here. <laughs> Please tell us a little bit about Age of Assassins and how you came up with this concept. Um, Age of Assassins is... It's, it's, a, it's a murder mystery, really, except you don't actually have a... It's a, a who's going to do it rather than a who's done it. Um, and and it's, it's told from the point of view of a 15-year-old apprentice assassin who is also coming of age. And when I started writing novels, there were three things I was never going to do, and they were a coming-of-age story, um, a teenage protagonist... And any form of romance, I just thought those things don't interest oh me. <laughs> yeah, and Age of Assassins is a coming-of-age story with a teenage protagonist, and it has a, a romance as part of the plot. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how it. I'm, I'm just contrary, I think. But I'm, I, I love crime writing, so that that was part of it. And before I wrote Age of Assassins, I wrote a science fiction book called A Darkness Against the Stars, which didn't quite sell. But I spoke to um, an editor called Matilda Imler, who was at Head of Zeus, and she was really interested in the book. But we ended up just talking about Agatha Christie and our love of sort of 1930s crime. And I think that was the genesis of it, that conversation with, with Matilda. And I'm not a very conscious thinker about things. It, I was actually doing writing something else that had been suggested that I might be quite good at. And then the whole idea for this book sort of appeared in my head. And I thought, oh, I'm going to write that instead. So that, that's what I did. And I wrote it in six weeks, I think, in the end. It was wow. really quick. And at what point did you realise that you'd broken all three of your rules? I, 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 just, <laughs> I was just reading it thinking, oh, oh, this was not what I intended. <laughs> <laughs> this is not where I was going with this. But it, it ended, oh, I'm clicking my pen. Charlotte's got rules. I've been given rules now. That's rule number one. I've just broken it. Um, yeah, it, it felt right, and it it was needed for the plot, and and so I didn't mind doing it. And I hate rules anyway. <laughs> Even my own rules, I don't like. Just ignore them. So you write fantasy entrenched in ideas of history and politics, where the fantastical elements take a sort of somewhat background importance, a bit like George R. R. Martin and Robin Hobb. Um, this is an area that's found a decent number of interesting female villains. Have you any idea why that might be? I think it, I'm very interested in history, and I, I've written a lot of um, historical scripts for people that work in museums and, and things like that. And I'd, when you when you look back at women in that sort of sort of 6th to right up to the 15th century um, you find these very strong unpleasant women but I think you have to remember when they're unpleasant that that's because it's written by by men and also to be a I mean it's difficult to be a woman in certain professions now but compared to then to to get forward you have to be immensely strong and and you find and Margaret of Anjou was who I was reading about, mm. and it, it's very much taken from her, uh, and this sort of fierce and very loyal and sure of herself woman, uh, and and also Queen Adron, who who is the antagonist. I thought it was quite important that when I finished the book, I felt like I could have rewritten the book from her point of view and made it the good guy, 
Oh, yeah, now I can see that. Yeah, because she, she doesn't believe she's doing anything wrong. And, well, it's she. It's, it's kind of... It is left ambiguous. Yeah. I suppose, so you take it as you're writing history, but you're writing it from a more kind of modern viewpoint and not just necessarily ignoring women or making them kind of scapegoats that you find in normal... Yeah, and, and there's, there's this... Um, there's a, a lot of my friends are historians, and there's an idea that um, some of them say is an idea and some of them say it's been thoroughly debunked before somebody puts a comment on saying no that's wrong that um, as societies move from sort of hunter-gatherer to cities you they move from a goddess type figure mm. to a, a masculine type figure and i really like that idea and i like the idea of it's very background in age of assassins but that that was something that happened within folk memory mm. so you you kind of there are constant references to there's been a time when women haven't been as sort of downtrodden as they are in this world. Yeah. And, and I kind of like that. And the assassins are kind of a bit older and the people of the festival have got this kind of thing going on where it, it, it's slightly different. And, and I like that. It's, it's this folk memory that's there somewhere in the background. Do you think that'll come out in the later novels? Has it already come out in the later novels? Because you finished them, haven't you? Yeah, I finished them. They're all done. I'm waiting for edits on the last one. But um, the story's done. <laughs> They're all whodunits, so it's very difficult. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah, I took I took them. I took the first chapter of Blood of Assassins down to London to read, and had dinner with my editor Jenny beforehand. And she's lovely. She's very funny. And she was going, "So what are you, what are you reading?" So I'm reading the first chapter of Blood of Assassins, which is the second one. And she went, "Hmm, are you?" And when she says, "Hmm," that means don't do that. And I was going, "Why are you doing that?" And she said, "Oh, you do know that you, you wrote a mystery book, and..." that first chapter what does it do and I was like oh it gives everything away so so I ended up just reading from Age of Assassins but yeah it does it does come into play mm. and I think it plays with the idea of female characters gradually being sidelined as well because of the world mm. um, though I, there's still some a lot of very strong women in the books um, they're not kind of it's not a I'll get the women out of the way type of thing it's the, this is a this is the way this world is and these are people working around it does that make sense? it does so what kind of fantasy books in particular have inspired you in your writing? oh I knew you were going to ask this because I read the questions I did actually you read you did the read them this time yeah I did I made him it's one of my yeah, rules yeah it is one of my rules <laughs> but I, I've not had much sleep because I was in London last night so I've probably forgotten most of them um I tend to read more history at the moment, and I read I read some of all the classic. Fantasy. When you say history, do you mean historical novels or history? Textbooks? Historical novels and factual history, um, and a lot of crime. And but I've read all all like um, the Pelgariad and, and all those things you, you read generally, sort of quite young. Um, the the novel that's had the biggest effect on me uh, is the Chronicles of Morgaine by C J Cherry, which um, I think is out of print. And, it, and it's an astounding book, and it's about um, Morgaine, who is a. And I'm going to spoil it for people if I talk about it. She's an alien, yeah. um, and she's closing down world gates on planets, um, and doing this has a devastating effect on the planet. She, mm. She's basically destroying civilizations, and she meets this man called Vanya, who's a barbarian. And she is just technologically so much better than him in every single way. And they have this very odd friendship. And it's platonic and really interesting. And, and, and I think that 
that relationship from reading that book has stuck with me mm-hmm. and then it's very much in in Age of Assassins and kind of explored in a different way in, in what I'll be doing hopefully doing next if I'll be going through if you don't give away any spoilers before yes. then yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, so your lead character Gurton is an assassin with a disability what prompted you to combine these two elements and did it prevent you um, pre- sorry present you with any particular challenges to overcome I used an assassin because it it was the nearest I had to a detective and one of the first things that came to him was the line to catch an assassin, use an assassin. So once I thought of that, I thought, oh, that, that sounds like the sort of thing you could sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, he's disabled, because that, that's something I'm familiar with. I've been very poorly, um, and it's not too bad at the moment. I've been control with a lot of drugs, but I've been at, in where it is very difficult to walk. You can't... Wait, not say you can't, of course you can. It's very difficult to write an action-based book yes. with a, an actually disabled protagonist because you can't have him sort of stay in bed all day because he's really tired. That just doesn't work. Absolutely. And so I chose a club foot because it, it it others him, it makes him different, and it's a... It's, it's an ugly word, a, a deformity, mm. and it's something you're born with, where... I suppose it's a physical deformity in the idea that you can actually see it and see its effects yeah. on perhaps a, a latent illness within you that is still a disability, but yeah. isn't necessarily noticeable. But you can do things with it, like Byron had a club foot and he mm. went to war and he, he swam, swam the Hellespont. Um, so it's not something that will stop him too much, but it is painful and mm. it causes him problems. And also I didn't want, I didn't want him to be wounded because I think there's a difference between a yes. disability from a wound. I think that's, that's got a sense of honour attached to it. Yes, and a sense of circumstance and it being yeah. something outside of you rather than disability that is something that is Yeah, and you kind you. of... It's, it's more a badge. It's, mm. Look, I took this wound in battle. It's not the same as I was born this way. And it allowed me to make him much much more of an outsider, mm. which is, is what I wanted to, to explore with him. And that, that's part of it. And, and also, I want... I think it's it's important that people can see themselves in books. Mm. So if you're you are you are disabled in some way, then you can see yourself in in Girton. Some people don't like the fact that I use the word cripple in a very pejorative sense. Mm. Um, but it's it's you put in the mouth of other people. But I think I think that's important because you're giving you're seeing it from his point of view. Yes, and he he doesn't like it, and he shouldn't like it. But this is his society, and it's something he has to get over. So it gives him, you know a little bit of a battle early on mm. and you can't put someone in that kind of setting mm. without also dealing with um, issues of that day which yeah. you know and, and the, the attitudes to as you say cripples which is a horrible word but the attitudes and the, the tones for cripples were very much a, a part of it and would be a natural thing for someone in that situation to deal with and, and they see that the land is very damaged by magic in the books and, and they see um, being crippled or deformed as part of magic and, and they really don't like magic mm. so it's another thing it, it others him again and again and again he's very much pushed to the edges of his society absolutely I mean do you think there's a reason why writers tend to avoid having a main protagonist with a disability and instead tend to have them as secondary characters I mean I know it's very yeah. challenging when I've written characters with disabilities you really have to rethink exactly how you're going to present it all sometimes yeah. laziness <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be on my part I can't speak for other people yeah um it, it's you have to work around it, and you have to you want to give people an exciting book. Mm. And as I said before, you can't you can't do that. You can't have well. You could use it your your character, but it'd be a, 
a character that sort of did have to lie down for a day and just couldn't cope, mm. it would be a very different kind of book. It wouldn't be... The Age of Assassins is very quite fast-paced. Mm. Um, and I don't think you could do that. It'd be a more contemplative book. It'd be interesting. I'd have a go at it. Well, I was thinking about Rear, Rear Window, isn't it? With um, Yeah. Yeah, where he's in the, the wheelchair, and, and it is naturally yeah. quite quite slow and quite focused, but at the same time also quite fast-paced yeah. because of what's going on. And, and also, you, you can make it ridiculous like I don't I don't know if, if, if how many I don't know the age of your listeners if they would remember Ironside who was the detective in a wheelchair I uh, would I'm not sure my co-host would yeah. <laughs> I have no idea yeah. and he would get involved in the action wheelchairing along yeah um, and it is it, there, there are people who do amazing things in wheelchairs but it, it does seem quite ridiculous to most people uh, and, and also he was quite a large man I'm not sure he would have been as energetic as they made him out to be in that so there's kind of you have to fight against people's perception mm. of whether it's right or wrong of, of what something is, I think. Mm. So you can't... Even if something is actually real, people can run around doing stuff. If, if there's a bigger perception, you have to kind of bring that idea in slowly, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we discussed this previously on what makes a realistic character. And, you yeah. know, it, it, it might be in the real world, but if that's you know if people mm. don't see it that way, then like you say, you need to try and draw them in. I mean, that's yeah. brilliant where fantasy is because you can use you know people like assassins and kind of go, well, actually, yeah, you know, someone with a club foot could be an assassin. It, it is possible, and here's how it how it would happen. Um, I mean, Gerton's mentor, known mostly as Master, is a female assassin, which is not someone who usually comes across as mm. very sympathetic. So, what made you want to invert this trope? Apart from obviously having it as a, a detective, was there any other reason why you thought an assassin would be particularly bothered about catching another assassin? Because they have quite a few morals in your book. It's yeah. not just that they're the, hired. It's like they kind of feel that they must go and do it. Yeah. The, oh, this is difficult to answer without spoiling things later on. They're, I think it's quite obvious from the beginning that their relationship is parent and child. Mm. Or has the elements of parent yeah, and child. Yeah, has the yeah. elements of parent parent and child. And, and she does not see him as an apprentice. She cares mm. for him a lot more, and he cares for her a lot more than, than as, a, as a master. They're, yes. They're, that is... And, it, and that... And also, I wanted to... She's quite a moral character. Mm. The people she kills, when... You, you read them, they tend to seem to be quite bad people. And that, that's... I can't really say much more because I'm then venturing into <laughs> the next books. But, um, yeah, they are, they are quite moral. She has a set of morals that, that she will ad- adhere to, but in the end, she will do anything to protect him. And that's, that's, why, that's what drives her. She's, she's protecting him. He's the one that's in real danger. Okay. He's the one that they would off. And, and Queen Andron knows that that boy is, is her leverage. Ah, okay. Right, well, steering away from any more spoilers. Yeah. Uh, are there any fantasy tropes that you'd like to see overturned or challenged? Um, and conversely, are there any cliché tropes that you really love? I don't really think about things like that. I just write things... And I, I, I'm not sure that any everything can be a cliche, but it's it's how you approach it. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of joy in taking something that, that like, oh, it's an, it's an assassin and his master. That that's that's that everybody knows that, and everybody's mm. read that before. But it's kind of really joyful to do it and then just twist it a little bit. Um, so you think everything's fair game then? Yeah, I think everything's fair game. 
I, and I think we're, we're probably going to come back to books about young children who are the one again at some point. The that, chosen one. Yeah, it's vanished now. So I think that, that'll come back in again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's coming. No, you're not going to escape. I don't think it's gone away completely, but yeah. No. But again, I suppose it has taken, you know, different turns as yeah. well. And people are reinventing it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so although, um, although Gertrude's master is a woman, um, he calls her master all the way through rather than mistress. So, without spoilers, can you explain why that might be? Is it because Gertrude doesn't see gender, or is it that he's so ingrained with the patriarchy that he just can't help himself? Because, I mean, certainly when he starts out, he's very timid, and very, yeah. in the flashbacks you have, he's, like, very respectful and almost scared of her. He, there's, there's a line in the first flashback, which he, he, I really like, um, where... It's not a spoiler for your readers because it happens quite early and you know he's brought up a slave and he's sold um, and she buys him. Um, But as part of that, there are women in the audience Mm. uh, and he he says that he didn't know girls grew up as well. Uh, So he's he's never, it's never occurred to him at at that age because he's only ever seen men. Where he's been, he's been kept by men, there's only ever been men. There's girls his age but they vanish at a certain time. I see. So it's not yeah. necessarily the influence of the greater society, it's the influence of the very insular yeah. society he's been part of. And that, that was the thinking at, at first, but I've kind of used it, I, I liked, I've kind of used it for all the assassins in the end, when, mm. when you do meet other ones. Um, they refer to whoever's in charge of them as master. Mm. And, and, and I liked that because... It kind of gives nothing away, and I thought if if it's like a shadowy mm. um, organisation, or is it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything about it. if somebody says, "Well, my master, that could yeah. be male or female." You don't An extra and, level and, so, of secrecy. Yeah, yeah so like it, it kind of made sense in two ways. It, it, I actually did it because I was thinking about how Gerton would think as a as a child, and then I I um, retconned it <laughs> in later books to to work with what I wanted to do. It's the way we all work, isn't it? So when imagining fantasy worlds, why do you think plenty of writers find it so difficult to imagine different gender and social dynamics? I think you you write what what you're used to, don't you? You write what you've read. And and it's easier to write sort of what you know. You can lift stuff straight from history. Mm. And it works. It, It works. We're familiar with it. And, and it's it's probably more challenging, especially I think especially if you're doing a, a debut, mm. to to present something that tips everything on its head. I, I think for a debut, to some degree, it's probably easier to presenting something that's that's recognisable. Absolutely, there's just sort yeah. of a step away, so you're only asking a small yeah. amount from your your audience as a step. But I, th- I think for me. Every time I do something, I want to push things a little bit further. Because mm. it, it, it's fantasy, and the thing is about changing society and, and presenting different ones. Like, in... in oh, I can't say that. I'm not meant to say anything about it. <laughs> there are new things planned, and I will push things in different directions and further, but not with these characters, different, completely different things. I can, I can see in your eyes that you want me to come back in a couple of years' time. Yeah, I do. Yeah, 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 and then, then we can questions. have this conversation again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, what was it about political intrigue and conspiracy stories that made you want to write one of your own? I know you said it, it was sort of started out and sort of arrived mm. in your head, but I mean, had you been reading some like that, or I read a lot of a you lot mean, of crime. But how did you make the crime the leap from sort of 
standard crime to huge, big courtly crime and, and things like that? It, I thought I might write a historical um, fiction, and I thought I might, I might sort of base it around about the 6th or 7th century, because mm. like, I like the sort of longhouses and, and things like that. Um, but there are no creatures with massive antlers that people ride around on in history, and I love creatures with massive antlers. So, And also, to do history, you have to do loads of research, and I don't like yeah. doing research because I get lost, and, and I just never write anything. I just do research. So I thought, I'm going to... I'm going to make it fantasy, and as soon as you make it fantasy, you can kind of draw it out and, and make it bigger, mm. and and invent your own characters. And when when you're doing a, a whodunit, you, you want to distract the reader. Yeah, yeah, you want them looking in the opposite direction and, and setting up a, a big court with, with lots of different people up to different things and not knowing. It, it's brilliant for that. Because you can just be going, no, look over there, don't look at that, look over there, what's this man doing, who is this person, what are they doing? And, and that, that's really good for it. And also, I like castles. <laughs> and I kind of wanted the castle in the thing hmm. to, to be a character in itself. It's yes. not, I don't think I've succeeded as well as I'd like. But, um, and for that, again, you need this, this big, big idea of a court and, and kings. Hmm. And also, that, that I wanted... This is away from court intrigue, but kind of this metaphorical journey for Gurton. He, he starts in the sewers and he ends up among kings. Oh, I see. Yes, that is. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, so there's... there's but if he's ended up among kings, where is he going to go next? That's the question. Oh, Which I know you can't tell me. No, I can't. No, I can't. It ruins the end of the book, so yeah. So did you particularly want to write a, a female villain, or did she naturally grow out as an antag- antagonist when you created your lead roles? And I know that you said that you go back and rewrite it from her point of view, so she's not really a villain. But, I mean, how did that process go? Yes. Um, it, it, this is so so boring for people who are interested in the mechanics of writing, because I don't write... I, it, I, I literally sit and write a book, and I don't really think about it. But um, So you didn't do planning sheets in advance or anything? No, like no, no. She just that. came into your head? And yeah, I, I, I just sit and I, I wrote it. And it's it's more or less the same book that I wrote. There's some... There's a couple of action sequences that were added and a sort of subplot that goes around in a circle that, that was added, but all the rest of it, the, the, the intrigue and, mm. and the romance was all, all in the first draft. Um, I forgot, what was, what was the question again? <laughs> oh, I'm so easily distracted. That's OK. It was what, how you came to have a female villain. Yeah. Like. Well, on, on the one side, we have, we have Girton and his master, Merrilla, mm. And uh, as we said, there's this sort of parent and child relationship, and it, yeah. it's not a, a traditional relationship, but there's a lot of love there and, and mutual respect, even though he, he's sort of starting to reach an age where he's kind of wanting to push against that. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to mirror that. I wanted to give you the other side of it. So you, you have um, Queen Adrian mm. and her son, Ador, who um, is it's the, mo- the most often word... Used word used to describe Adar in every review is a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's been kind uh, yeah. actually, but um, and I kind of wanted to have this mirror of theirs where that yeah. is that is a traditional, natural mother and child, mm. but their relationship is awful. Yes, and and, and that I'm, I'm interested in an idea of power and how it twists things, mm. and that relationship is all about power and being twisted. Yeah, I'm being twisted, and 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 I like that. So I think. It's it's the mirror of their 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 
that's why she's a female protagonist. Mm. Also, I've been loads of writing, reading about Margaret of Anjou as well. <laughs> it all comes back to Margaret of Yeah, Anjou. yeah. And she, I think um, you need acknowledgements in your book for I her. I should. <laughs> she's a fantastic Thanks character. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. Sorry you died penniless and sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we obviously discussed this earlier, but Age of Assassins is heavily focused on the idea of outsiders in terms of class and social expectations, uh, physical disabilities, and obviously an awful lot more. What is it, do you think, that's so fascinating to readers about outsiders and what makes them such good protagonists? I th- we, we like this idea of, of sort of me against the world, <laughs> which is, is, if you look at real life, it's ridiculous because mm. the, the people that are actually are me against the world are, are usually terrible people. Um, like, if you look at terrorist organisations, uh, uh, the lucky little group of outsiders. Mm. But... Um, when we get to stories, I think if if you have an, it's much easier to root for an outsider against what are the forces of order, and I think that Marilla and and Girton are essentially chaos added into what is quite an orderly society. Mm. And if you if you follow order on far enough, you get Nazis, um, and and there's there's that kind of rigidness. And I think there's a lot of joy for us to see that rigidness broken when probably we can't do it in our own lives. Like you, you can't go into your, your job and smash everything up because they're... Well, I can because I work from home, so yeah, well, <laughs> but I'd have to tie it up. That's a bit of a pyrrhic victory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you work in a... I used to work in a call centre and you're kind of aware that people are not always being treated the best way mm. and you you can't turn around and, and go no this is wrong i'm gonna strike a blow for these people because you just get fired mm. so i think there's kind of this deep-seated need within all of us to mm. to find people who are just going no i'm gonna do the right thing well take your example of the call center i suppose you can't really rise up because you'll be punished as much as them whereas if you're yeah. an outsider and you're not part of the law and you're not part of that order you can bring it down with that personal well, obviously there is always some personal cost in mm. stories, but, you know, without being caught up in, in all of it. And the, the other thing with an outsider is you, you have to, because it's, it's written in first person, you have to explain the world to them. Mm. So that Girton's put into a place he's unfamiliar with, so he has to learn about it, which is a really good way for me to tell the reader Absolutely. about it, which is... is that, that's the boring bit, though. I prefer the, the rise up and smash the system <laughs> version. <laughs> so, finally, if you could recommend one book that you've read this year for um, our listeners to, to read, what would it be? Any genre at all. Uh, uh, yeah, go on then, she says. With... Um, I would recommend probably Slow Horses by Mick Heron, which is a spy thriller um, and just an astounding book. It's, I, it's, I think it's won the CWA dagger. What did you enjoy so much about it? Was it the setting or the protagonist or it's the just mystery everything well about it is brilliant. <laughs> it's it's the idea behind it is that people in MI6 don't get fired; they get sent to Slough House and given the worst jobs until they quit. Mm. Um, and it follows those people, and they're overseen by Jackson Lamb, who's described as Timothy Spall if he let himself go. <laughs> <laughs> and he's an awful, awful man. His job is to make them quit. Mm. Um, but he's very protective of his people. And because they're essentially useless, every so often somebody will try and use them as scapegoats. Mm. And he won't have that. And, and it's how they get embroiled in terribly dangerous things because somebody's trying to palm stuff off on them. 
but every page just has something wonderful on it just something written that you just think oh, why am I even bothering this is just <laughs> this is brilliant and I like that and fantasy wise all science fiction or horror oh, any of those are good horror Jason Arnup's um, The Last Days of Jack Sparks is an excellent book annoyingly because I really I'm friends with Jason I want to be able to tell him it's rubbish terrible Jason just to see his face but it's really good um, you were a terrible friend yeah it would have been funny um, <laughs> he thought it was well he might not have thought it was funny I would but um, yeah The Last Days of Jack Sparks is an excellent book very clever and it's one of those books with, with a moment in it where you suddenly realise what's going to happen and you just think oh that's really good well done um, and also um, for fantasy I'm going to go with a book that most people have heard of it's called The Bastard Wonderland by Lee Harrison which uh, I know Lee as well and I probably wouldn't have come across his book if I hadn't known him because it mm. came out to quite a small small press uh, and it's very quirky and northern hugely imaginative um, northern? yeah it's really it's, but it's it, fantasy yeah he, he it's just like Doctor Who it's like every planet has a north yeah it, it's, it's kind of like that and he describes it as kitchen sink fantasy okay uh, and the, the heroes no, not even heroes they're quite hapless mm. um, and it, it, it's just it's kind of like Yorkshire meets the Persian Empire. It's, it's it's brilliant, really clever, and joyous to read in a kind of way. And also, um, back to science fiction, Adrian Tchaikovsky's *Children of Time*. Yeah, which is a wonderful book. Popular choice. Yeah, it's it's really clever. Made me like spiders, which is. Yeah, I can't see that ever happening to me. <laughs> yeah, have you read it? No, but <laughs> yeah, I, no. I didn't think so. But I ended up rooting for the spiders. You're like, oh, yeah, I like you. You, you understand? <laughs> good spiders. Me. Yeah, they are good spiders. Yeah. Well, thank you, RJ, for joining us and not giving away too many spoilers. Uh, perhaps we can speak again when all of the books are out, and you can tell us a little bit about Watership Down. Oh yeah, see, I didn't even mention Watership Down. I know. Down. I was yeah. under strict instructions not to ask you because we don't have that long. <laughs> is that is that loose? I would have gone on forever if we got onto to Watership Down. Thank Talking you. rabbits are wonderful, though. You've started me... Thank you, RJ. Let me stop you there and say thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper.